Picture this typical scene at your neighborhood gym. Two friends are coming to the end of their workout. That's uh, 30 minutes for me. Hey, listen, I'm beat. I'm going to hit the showers. Sounds good. I'll catch up. I just want to finish this set. Eight. Nine. Ten. Nothing out of the ordinary there. But did you notice that that guy on the weights didn't stop at seven or nine or 11? It probably would have seemed pretty strange if he had. And that guy on the treadmill did 30 minutes, not 28 or 33. It's rare to hear someone say they did 13 laps in the pool. And you've probably never heard a coach or a drill sergeant yell, drop and give me 49. Today, we're going to explore the way we set goals and how to leverage insights from behavioral science to help us meet those goals. I'm Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about subtle forces that push you in one direction or another when you're trying to make decisions. We bring you high-stakes stories that illustrate these forces And then we dive into the science behind our occasionally irrational behavior. Finally, we try to give you some tools to fight back against behavioral traps, all to help you avoid costly mistakes. Hi, my name is Jason Beck, and I work as the curator and the facility director at the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame in Vancouver. We've invited Jason Beck to talk about one of the most famous performance goals in the world of track and field, the four-minute mile. What surprised me was there were references back in like the 1770s of runners that were running close to a four-minute mile. For hundreds of years, Running a mile in four minutes or less appeared to be beyond the reach of human athletic ability. But as training improved, runners began to close in on the target. The runner that really changed things was Walter George. He was a professional runner from Britain in the 1880s, um, and he ran four, four minutes, 12 seconds. For the first time, people were really going wow, like this, this is a possibility. Um, someone could improve and get to that four-minute mark. From there, you see a steady progression. It really picks up um, around 1915. There's a series of runners from 1915 and through to the 1930s that chipped away at that mark. By the 1940s, chasing the four-minute mile became something of a global phenomenon. Runners all over the world became obsessed with breaking this barrier. But they all came up short. Swedish runner Gunder Haig came the closest when he ran a mile in 4 minutes and 1.4 seconds. That was in 1945. The public conversation around the 4-minute mile was that many thought it, it was impossible. There literally was a barrier that a human being could not run Uh, faster than uh, what the current record was. The four-minute mile seemed to push against the limits of human physical capability. But that didn't stop runners from trying. Two runners who would figure prominently in the quest for the four-minute mile 
were John Landy and Roger Bannister. John Landy was a young Australian athlete who had barely qualified for his country's Olympic team in 1952. Essentially, I think he was like the last person selected to Australia's track team. So he was a young runner. They kind of brought him along for experience. Not much was expected of him. And he gets completely outclassed. He doesn't make it out of his his heat. And he takes a lot of what he's heard and learned, and he goes back to Australia, and he it's like a motivating factor for him how poorly he did. He, he, he doesn't want to end there. He, he wants to get to another level. Roger Bannister was a practicing junior doctor in England at the time. He was aiming for a gold medal in the slightly shorter 1,500-meter race in the 1952 Olympics, and then planned to retire from the sport to focus on his medical career. But the race didn't go Bannister's way. Well, I had um, failed in the 1952 Helsinki Olympics. I was a, a favorite to win the gold medal, and I came fourth. And I was very disappointed with myself. The team were disappointed in me, and also the British public. This is Roger Bannister, interviewed as part of a 2013 documentary by the Commonwealth Games Federation. By then, it was getting difficult to combine sport and my medical studies. I had the alternative of retiring, feeling dissatisfied, or going on for two more years when there were the Commonwealth Games and also the chance perhaps to break the four-minute mile. So those were the reasons why 1954 became important to me and it was my last opportunity before having to retire. Roger Bannister set his sights on the four-minute mile. He was looking to end his running career on a high note. John Landy, on the other hand. He certainly wasn't chasing the the four-minute mile like Roger was. John was just trying to improve. He was just trying to get better. And he did get better. Much better. Landy had run a surprisingly good mile race where he clocked in at just four minutes and two seconds. And that first race where he runs 4.02 out of the blue, that shocked him. I remember in an interview, he was saying, I was as surprised as anybody that I could run that fast. And I think at that point, he starts thinking, okay, that is a goal that I'm going to chase now. This four-minute barrier was so tantalizing that the medical community got involved in efforts to shatter it. Researchers would bring elite runners into the lab to try to determine how to improve performance. Bannister was actually doing a lot of the testing himself because he was a medical student. And part of his area of study was physiology. And there's all sorts of these anecdotes of him, you know, literally testing himself on a treadmill in his own lab, taking blood samples as he's running. Roger Bannister was getting so close to his goal. He'd run several times just over four minutes. On May 6th, 1954, at a small track meet in Oxford, he decided to try again. Apparently, he was working a shift at the hospital. He actually took time out to go into one of the laboratories where he could actually sharpen his track spikes. Bannister was working the same day as a world record attempt. He works his hospital shift, catches a train uh, from London out to Oxford. It's about a 45-minute or an hour train ride. And it's it's a really stormy, blustery, kind of not so great day. It's raining, it's windy. The worst possible conditions for a record attempt. And this is at a time when they're running on cinder tracks. So it's 
it's going to be muddy. There's probably going to be standing water. It's not like the rubberized tracks that, that we see today. Things were not looking good. The wind was so strong, Bannister figured he'd have to run even harder than usual to get close to that elusive four-minute time. They were in the change room, and Roger kept looking out the window across the street where there was this church, and there was a flag on the church steeple. And uh, every time he looked out, the wind was just flapping this flag. And then at one point, the wind drops, and the flag kind of goes limp, and he kind of makes a decision, you know, just minutes before the, the race is scheduled to run. Okay, it's on. We're, we're going for this. So they get out to the track. It's part of a small track meet, a university and, and school meet. Not many people knew that they were going for this record attempt, but enough knew that the BBC was there filming it. The record attempt would not be run as a competitive race. Bannister would have pace runners do single laps to help him keep the right speed. This was more like a lab experiment, where the conditions were a bit more controlled. And since the pace runners were in front of Bannister, they also helped reduce wind resistance. All the while, Roger's running in the draft behind the, these two guys, takes over in the last half lap. And you can see the, the video on YouTube today. And it's just amazing. His stride just opens up and he just, his hair is flapping. His mouth is wide open. He's just gasping for air. You know, his head is kind of flung back. He's just giving everything. He writes in his book how, you know, it was almost like an out-of-body experience, the pain he was experiencing. He could see himself approaching the finish line and then almost like, there was almost like a chasm and he kind of throws himself over it and across the line and then everything goes black. I don't know if he lost consciousness momentarily, but he certainly looks like he does on, on film. The small crowd was gripped with anticipation. Everyone wanted to know, had he run the mile in under four minutes? Then the announcer says, A new English native, a new British, a new European, and a new world record. And everyone's kind of hanging on air with a time of three. And then the crowd just erupts and drowns out the rest of the time. It didn't matter what the rest of the time was. It was under four minutes. And uh, there's just pandemonium. As it was, he, he ends up running 3 minutes, 59.4 seconds, the first four-minute mile in history. And it was a great moment. The, the reception to Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile was, was the equivalent of like Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay ascending Mount Everest. It was world news, front-page news on every continent. Roger Bannister was instantly one of the most widely known names, not just in world sport, but in the world. It was possible. A human could run a mile in under four minutes. And um, I think it opened the gates for a lot of runners. And the best example of that is John Landy. You know, 46 days later, he too runs a sub four minute mile and uh, runs even faster, 358. Incredible. Decades passed where runners were barely managing to shave fractions of seconds off their four-minute-plus miles. And then Roger Bannister comes along and smashes through the barrier. And then it only takes a month and a half more for John Landy to break that record. But were these two records flukes? Bannister's was achieved in a more controlled attempt, 
with pace runners helping. John Landy's record at this point was considered a more legitimate one, as he'd achieved it during a normal race. The debate was fierce, but it would be settled once and for all in Vancouver, Canada. They both realized, hey, we're going to the Empire Games in Vancouver. This is setting up for this incredible matchup between the two greatest milers in history in their prime. It's Saturday, August 7th, 1954. There are at least 35,000 people in Empire Stadium. It's the largest paid sports crowd in Canadian history to that point. NBC is broadcasting the race live, as is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's the first event ever broadcast live simultaneously in the U.S. and Canada. More than 100 million people tuned in on their radios. Millions more watched on television. The air was electric. If if you talk to people that were in the, the stadium that day, they compared it to like the anticipation before like a rock concert or like a heavyweight championship fight. And there were people that were shelling out $100 to scalpers to get in. In 1954, that's like a week's wages for a lot of people. So this was a big deal. So they're lined up at the line for the mile, um, eight runners. The air is just buzzing with anticipation. The crowd goes silent. The gun goes off and they're off. And it it was just a sprint from the get-go. John Landy is definitely the favorite in the mile race in Vancouver, without a doubt. Landy still in the lead. Roger Bannister second and pulling up, decreasing the lead. Just a second, Royal will give us the time on the second lap. One fifty-eight. he's ahead of his world's record time this far. He was someone with greater stamina, uh, but on the other hand, I had a better finish. So I had to ensure that he took the lead and tried to exhaust me. Bannister knew he had to stick close behind Landy and try to conserve energy for that last push to the finish line. Landy's still in the lead, Bannister second. We may be seeing history in the making here this afternoon in the Miracle Mile at Vancouver, British Columbia. I got a good gap between myself and Roger Bannister. And coming to the third lap, I continued on, but he started to catch up. That's John Landy from the same 2013 Commonwealth Games Federation documentary. Be prepared for Bannister's famous burst of speed at the end of the fourth lap. We're now more than halfway through the third lap. Coming down the back straight, the sun was in such a position that I could see my shadow and his shadow. And I started to inch ahead a little bit, which gave me some optimism. And some people on the inside of the track yelled out, you know, you're going well. You see now, the only two men in the world who have ever run the mile in less than four minutes. But I managed to get to his shoulder near the end of the fourth lap. Coming round the final bend, I went through the 1,500 metres just slightly behind my world record, so I was really going pretty fast. But I realised that within another 20 metres or so that I couldn't hold the pace. And then I managed to overtake him At the time, he happened to look over his left shoulder. Watch for the burst of speed from Bannister now. So he couldn't see that I was overtaking him. And then when he looked back to the front, I was already ahead and had sufficient advantage. In the footage of the race, 
The cameras are literally shaking from the noise of the crowd and the stadium just going wild. You can also see in the footage at the exact instant when John Landy looks back over his left shoulder, Roger Bannister speeds by on the right. Roger Bannister on the lead. Roger Bannister had come from behind and won the race. But what was his time? It might be. They're hugging each other down there while they're checking the times. This might be a record it's within a split second of it. Roger Bannister finished with a time of three minutes, 58 and 8 tenths seconds. But he wasn't the only one under four minutes. John Landy finished second with a time of three minutes, 59 and 6 tenths seconds. Bannister didn't quite break Landy's world record, but it marked the first time the four-minute mile had been broken by two men in the same race. The winner, number 329, Dr. Roger Gilbert Bannister of England. The race came to be known as the Miracle Mile. It was incredibly dramatic. But dramatic races happen all the time. Records are broken regularly. What was special about this one? Roger Bannister again. Well, it caught the public imagination. The idea of four laps in a minute each and breaking that barrier was, I thought, rather psychological than actual. Roger Bannister, the first man to run a sub-four-minute mile, died at the age of 88 in 2018. John Landy, the second man to do it, lives in Melbourne, Australia. Jason Beck is the author of The Miracle Mile, stories of the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games, and the curator and facility director at the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame in Vancouver, Canada. Fun fact... The British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame has in its collection the Omega stopwatch that was used to record Roger Bannister's first place time in the Miracle Mile. The amazing thing about it? The stopwatch was never started again. It still reads 3 minutes, 58 and 8 tenths seconds. I've got a link to the Miracle Mile documentary and a photo of the stopwatch in the show notes and at schwab.com podcast. Special thanks to the Commonwealth Games Federation and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for use of archival material. In the 64 years since the so-called Miracle Mile race between Roger Bannister and John Landy, the mile record has fallen by nearly 17 seconds. And more than 1,400 athletes have now run sub-four-minute miles. So while it remains an incredibly difficult goal, myth of the impossible four-minute mile has been well and truly shattered. But why don't we hear about the international push to break the current mile record of three minutes and 43.13 seconds? It's hard to say for sure. But for one thing, it's not a round number. For some reason, it doesn't capture the imagination the way the four-minute barrier did. 
I want to look into this phenomenon of round numbers as powerful reference points a bit more. This time, at a gas station. We wanted to test the theory that round numbers are meaningful to people in a context where they don't actually matter that much to the bottom line. If you pay for gas with cash, there's some small benefit to hitting a round number at the pump. Say the pump reads $19.59. You might be tempted to top up the tank to $20 even, so you don't have to carry around coins in your pocket. But we wanted to see what happened when people paid with a credit card or debit card. So how are you paying today? Uh, Credits. How much gas do you predict you're actually going to be able to get in the tank today? Probably 40-something, 43, 46, somewhere like that. Okay. Yeah, so it should be just under that. So how much did... 41.91. Okay, great. Put a little bit more in, we'll go for 42.95. And um, I noticed after it it clinked, you kept going a little bit. Why did you keep going after it clinked? You always try to round the number up to the round dollar number, and it never, ever works. And what... It goes to 42, then 42.02, and you go, oh, I'll put a little bit more in. Yeah, so I was trying to get it to 43 even. I just wanted a a whole number with no sense. So why do you think you wanted to get to 43 even. Why did you want to get to that round number? (laughs) It's just neat. It's a bit like playing the slot machines. How much did you put in today? Just 25 dollars. And why did you choose 25 (laughs) dollars? Because I'm a broke dude. (laughs) But you could, by that logic, you could have put in 24 dollars and 50 cents. So why did you choose 25 dollars? Because I'm weird and I like full round numbers. It's easy. It's our brain works on 20s, 25s, 30s, 10s, 100s. That's for me anyway. That's how I look at it. I like to be able to have that nice round number. Could be OCD. I don't know. (laughs) But um, probably because it looks nicest for most people. uh, Would you ever ever put in an odd number amount, an uneven amount of, say, 29? No. (laughs) Because I just wouldn't come to mind. Pumping to a round number didn't happen every time, but it happened a lot. This preference for round numbers is common, and it it makes sense. Round numbers are pleasing to the eye. They're easier to remember and easier to mentally process. If I tell you to add 10,000 and 4,000, you can do it right away. 437 plus 729 might take you a bit longer. People tend to use round numbers when estimating and guessing as well. It's basically a way to simplify the world. This preference for round numbers can lead to some strange behavior. It's been shown that men of a certain height range tend to round their height up to six feet in their online dating profiles, for instance. It can cause people to round down or up by substantial sums when negotiating on the sale price of a house. And while this preference might sometimes cost you money at the bargaining table, round numbers can also help you achieve your goals. To get into the science behind goals and round numbers, I invited Devin Pope onto the show. Devin is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago. Devin, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about what goals are and why they influence people's behavior. Can you talk a little bit about what these things are, why they matter? Yeah, uh, it's interesting, right? So from a from kind of a very standard economics perspective, you might imagine they don't matter very much, right? Because oftentimes we'll set a goal, but there's no contract 
attached to a goal. There's nothing that says that I'm going to have to pay out a bunch of money if I don't reach this goal, at least kind of these kind of soft goals that we oftentimes make. Um, but they do matter, and we all know this. So to me, it seems like these goals are often meant to impose psychological costs and benefits on ourselves. So if I have a goal to hit a certain weight, I convince myself to feel bad if I don't hit that weight, and I convince myself to feel good if I do. So these goals are soft commitments that we make that end up having actual rewards uh, attached to them because of our psychology. It makes me think about my fitness tracker and how it jiggles when I get 10,000 steps. And sometimes I take extra steps in the bedroom before bed, which drives my husband nuts because <laughs> I'm at like 9,750 and I can't bear to go to bed before 10,000. Is that normal? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. we um, Yes, for your sake, I'll say it's normal. Uh, no, for sure it is, right? So that, that jiggle, little things like that can be enough to really motivate us, um, which could be surprising if you were just thinking about pure economic theory. Uh, but, it, but it does matter. The psychology matters. Can you talk a little bit about this tendency people have to set goals at round numbers? Let me give maybe a couple of examples. So... If I asked you, what is the most common marathon running time? Your answer might be somewhere around four hours if you're familiar with marathons. The answer, a better answer would be three hours and 59 minutes or three hours and 58 minutes. Uh, so a lot of people finish marathons right before these round numbers. Uh, they do the same thing at three hours and 29 minutes and, and two hours and 59 minutes. And so what's clear from the data is that people are wanting to just beat round number goals. So it appears that they're setting these goals at round numbers. And if you just ask them, they also say, yeah, my goal was to run less than a four-hour marathon. That's really interesting. What are some other settings where people have these kinds of round number goals besides running? So for example, Yuri Simonson and I find that SAT takers are more likely to retake the SAT if they fall just below a round number. So for example, if you got a 1190 on the SAT, you're much more likely to retake the exam than if you got a 1200. Uh, and this is the type of round number goals that might actually be a bad thing. Maybe if you got a 1200, you should also be retaking the SAT. And yet you don't feel quite such a strong motivation to do so because you've already hit a round number goal. Can you think of any studies or findings that point to ways we can best harness goals to help people achieve more? So my colleague, George Wu, here at the University of Chicago, has been working with runners and encourages them to set goals. So again, goal-setting behavior can be this really good thing. And, and so he asks runners that are about to run a marathon to actually write down and, and think about a goal. Now, most of them have already thought about some goal, but having them write it down makes it a little bit more concrete. And they often choose these round numbers, again, as, as their goal. But what he finds is that those people that he asked to have them write down their goal compared to a control group that didn't write down their goal, the ones that wrote down their goal end up running faster. So again, as you make these goals have stronger and stronger psychological rewards, both benefits and costs for making it, not making it, uh, it can lead to a change in your motivation. So why do you think people use round numbers as goals so often? I think it's still a little unclear, but I think there's a couple of potential reasons. So one is that it's just convenience. You have to choose some goal and, you know, it makes more sense to choose a goal of, of getting a 3.0 GPA as opposed to getting a 2.987. So it's just convenient to choose round numbers as goals. They're easy to remember. 
And so it's something that you can kind of motivate yourself and think about easier. Another explanation is related to a different bias, which is called left-digit bias. This bias argues that people pay attention more to left-digit numbers than digits that are further to the right in a number. So this bias would explain why stores price things at two ninety nine. Um, and of course, that's because it feels cheaper than if it was priced at three dollars, because you're kind of focused on the two. And so it could be that another reason why people have round numbers as goals is because if you can run a three-hour and fifty-nine-minute marathon, it just seems a lot better than running a four-hour marathon. There's this kind of discontinuity in terms of how cool it seems, because we care about these left digits a bit. And so that's another reason why we might set round numbers at goals. So, for example, not very many people want to buy their wife a point nine nine carat diamond, but one carat diamonds that's a that's a very nice diamond. Uh, you feel kind of cheap if you do a point nine nine carat diamond. There just feels it feels like something's different about point nine nine and one. Devin, this was so great. Thank you very much for joining and explaining how goals and round numbers work. Thanks for having me, Katie. Devin Pope is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. I'm Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Fixating on arbitrary reference points can adversely impact your finances. Think about big decisions we all face eventually, like when to retire and when to claim Social Security. Our sister podcast, Financial Decoder, explores topics like these. Mark Reapy, who's head of the Schwab Center for Financial Research, hosts the show. Check out the second episode where Mark and his guest, Rob Williams, offer ideas to help you formulate a social security plan that's right for you. You can find it at schwab.com slash financial decoder or wherever you listen to podcasts. As I mentioned before, this preference for round numbers can result in some peculiar behavior. Buying or selling investments when they hit magic numbers can cost you money. Overfilling your gas tank is probably not a great idea. Rounding up your tips at restaurants can get expensive, but you can also leverage this bias. I mentioned my fitness tracker buzzing at 10,000 steps earlier. Hitting that magic number makes me feel good, and it's good for me. Goal setting, and goal setting particularly at round numbers that really resonate for you, can have a material impact on your motivation to stick with an exercise routine, or a savings plan, or a diet regimen. Gary Latham and Edwin Locke are two of the most prominent researchers on goal setting. After evaluating dozens of their own studies, as well as studies by other scientists, they concluded that goals can most usefully direct our attention towards outcomes we're trying to achieve, when they're specific and difficult, but also not outrageously tough. So losing five pounds this month might be a solid goal, not some weight and not the outrageous 25 pounds or the easy one pound goal. Research by Chip Heath, Rick Larrick, and George Wu has shown part of the reason goals are so effective is that if we fail to achieve them, we feel like we've lost out on something important. And losses loom larger than gains, as we've discussed in past episodes. Goals are also great for sharing. If you make a public commitment to a goal, you'll stand to lose even more self-respect if you don't achieve it than if it's just a private goal. So if you have some weight you've been meaning to lose, or a nasty habit you're trying to break, or a new routine you're hoping to kickstart, 
you might want to pick a round number goal that's tough, but not completely out of reach. Tell everyone you know and watch your motivation climb. A careful plan of attack should be able to get you to the finish line. Just don't go too far and beat yourself up over narrowly missing a difficult goal. After all, a four hour and one minute marathon is still a really good time. You've been listening to Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. If you've enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, you can subscribe for free. Same goes for other podcasting apps. Subscribe and you won't miss an episode. Next time on the show, a dramatic story from a pioneer in the field of transplant surgery. And we'll look at how it's not always rational to judge your decisions based on how they turn out. I'm Katie Milkman. Talk to you next time. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash podcast.